Well, as always, church, it is good to be with you. Uh, for those of you who may be new or visiting, my name is Tyler David. I'm the downtown campus pastor and one of the preaching pastors here at the Austin Stone, and we're glad that you're here. Uh, today, we're on the Gospel of Mark, continuing our series called Normal Christianity. Normal Christianity. And this series is intended to capture this unique section that we're in, we find ourselves in Mark's Gospel. That in this section, Jesus is teaching his disciples, these 12 men, he's teaching them what it means to follow him, what it means to obey him, what it means to love him. Because these men will be the ones teaching the world, teaching the nations, teaching us 2,000 years later what it means to follow Jesus. And so over the next several weeks, we're learning along with them as Jesus is teaching us what should be normal, what should be normal for his followers. Like I said last week, this is not a series for radical followers. This is a series for every follower of Jesus. This is normal, normal Christianity. And the topic that we're going to cover today, that Jesus is going to cover today, is the topic of greatness. The topic of greatness. Jesus is going to define what it means to be truly great, what it means to be truly significant. And this was a burning desire in the hearts of his disciples, and we're no different now. We are no different now. All of us long to be great. All of us want to be significant, at least to one person. It's ingrained in us. We long to be valued and highly esteemed by others. We long for it. Things like Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and blogs all are fueled by this desire in humanity. We want to be recognized. We want to be great. And the desire in us This desire in you is so strong that even if you and I don't feel like we could be great, we want to associate with greatness. We want to know people who are great. We want to to buy certain products and wear certain brands and be a part of certain institutions because we even want to be associated with things that we deem that are great. No, we are so driven by this that even if we can't be great, we'll associate with someone who we deem is. And a really good friend of mine got married a couple years ago. And he married into a family that was very powerful and successful. His new father-in-law is a very powerful and successful lawyer in New York City. And I never met the man before. The first time I met him was at my friend's wedding. And this wedding was incredible. It was incredible. One of the best parties I've ever been to. It was at this beautiful country club with amazing food and amazing drinks and a Motown band. I mean, it was awesome. Hey, no, they spared no expense. I mean, it was really nice. And I remember right before the ceremony, me and all the other groomsmen were sitting in the men's locker room and kind of taking it all in because we're like, we're never going to be a place this nice ever again. Soak it up, boys. Like, we're never going to be here again. And it was awesome. And the father-in-law walked in. It was so interesting, interesting when the father-in-law walked in how all of us really flocked to him. We really did. I mean, we, we wanted to be around him. We wanted to say thank you because he's a good man and he'd been generous to pay for all that we were enjoying. But part of it was we wanted to be around someone who was great. See, this this man has everything that this world would say is great. He's powerful. He's successful. He has money. He has a great family. Everything this world would say, greatness is defined by this, and he had it. And it was funny how all of us wanted to be around him and be liked by him. I I found it myself. It was so weird for me that I I found myself thinking, I wonder if he likes me. And if, if you don't know me, I hardly ever think that. I just assume you like me. I don't ever think that. But with this guy, I'm thinking, is he like me? Was that funny? Should I have laughed there? That was weird. Like, I'm thinking those things. You're laughing at jokes that aren't funny? We've all done that. 
You've been there. You've met someone you admire, an athlete, a celebrity, the CEO of your company, your role model, someone you deem as great, and you get around them, and you have this strange desire all of a sudden to be liked. You're laughing at jokes that aren't funny. It's what we do. We have this great desire to be significant. It's in all of us. It's in all of us. And I want you to hear this. That desire, that desire is a God-given longing. It may sound weird at first, but it's absolutely true. You were made for greatness. You were made to be significant. It's, a, it's something that God put in the fabric of every human being. And the disciples that we're going to find today, just like us, had this desire to be great. And just like us, their sin, their sin twisted this desire. It contorted this desire and they began to settle for the greatness the world had to offer. Sin blinded them like it blinds us to the greatness that Jesus has in mind for his people. Jesus has unfathomable greatness in mind for all who follow him. He has incomprehensible greatness for every person who repents of their sin and follows him. But, but the road, the path to that greatness is much different than we would think. The route to this greatness is much different than you and I might think. So we're going to see that today in Mark 9. If you have a Bible, go and open up there to Mark 9. We'll be in verse 30 through 37. And Jesus is going to teach us on greatness. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen behind me. Verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus has one clear truth for us today about greatness. One clear thing to take away, that greatness is not defined by what you accomplish, but by whom you have served. That greatness is not defined by your accomplishments, but by who you have served. That significance is not found through the title on your business card or the number in your bank account or the reputation of your children or by however many people that you know. Greatness is not defined by these things. No, it is found through service. And it is found through serving especially those who can't repay you, especially those who treat you like a servant. Especially those it is difficult to serve. See, normal Christianity... Normal Christianity is not forsaking greatness. It's not forsaking greatness. No, it's pursuing the true and everlasting greatness that comes from God. Normal Christianity is all about greatness. It's just about true and everlasting greatness that comes from God. So Jesus starts off his teaching about greatness by reminding his disciples that he's going to die. He starts off this whole section reminding his disciples that he is going to die. Look at verse 30 again. Look at verse 30. 
And they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. See, Jesus and his disciples, are, they're on the move. Okay, they're at the Mount of Transfiguration, they're down in the valley, and they're beginning to move through Galilee. And Jesus is purposely being secretive. He doesn't want anyone to know they're in the region. Because he wants time alone with his disciples, with his boys. And he's teaching them, hey guys, I need to remind you again, I'm going to die. That's the plan. The plan is for me to die. I'm going to be killed, but I'm going to rise again. That the Old Testament prophecies are true. I will reign forever, but I have to suffer first. And he's telling them this again. See, this is not the first time he's told them this truth. In the end of Mark 8, he told them. On the Mount of Transfiguration, he told the other three disciples. He's telling them again and again because he knows they don't really believe him. He knows that in their heart of hearts, they don't want this to be true. They don't want Jesus to die. It's so counter to what they thought the Messiah would do. They can't understand it. They can't believe it, so he keeps reminding them. And in, the next, in verse 32, you begin to see how the, the disciples' response shows you how much they don't want this to be true. Look at verse 32 again. Look at verse 32. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Okay, they cannot believe the Messiah is going to die. They had read the Old Testament prophecies. They knew he's going to be a king. He's going to rule the world. They had this in mind, but he's saying he has to die first. See, in their mind, he was supposed to free them from political oppression, supposed to destroy the Romans, and most importantly for these 12 men, in their minds, he was supposed to set up a physical kingdom where they would reign with him. That's what they had in mind. And when Jesus says, I'm going to die, it flips everything upside down and says that they're afraid to ask him. This is really interesting. They're afraid to ask him. See, they're afraid to ask him because they don't want to know the answer. They don't want to know the answer. Deep down, I think, in their heart of hearts, they know what the answer is. They know what the clarification is, but they don't want to ask. See, the fact that the disciples are confused is nothing new for us. These guys hardly ever understand what Jesus is saying or doing. They never understand. But they always ask for clarification. They always ask for clarification. You read Mark's Gospels, and so many of the accounts are the disciples pulling Jesus aside and saying, hey, what do you mean by that? We have no idea what's going on. That's often the conversations they have, but in this instance, they don't ask for clarification. They don't ask for clarification because they're scared. They're scared. They don't want this to be true. It can't be true. And you begin to see why they're so scared in verse 33. Look at verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silence. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. See, it becomes very obvious that these disciples have their own agenda. They have their own agenda for Jesus' kingdom. See, his kingdom is their ticket to greatness. And these guys have an actual argument over who is the greatest. I mean, think about how comical this is. They're walking on the way and they're talking, they're going, hey, I'm definitely greater than you. For you, for sure, you shouldn't even be talking to me. You're really bad. Like, they're having this conversation but who's the greatest? How can you not love these guys? They have no tact whatsoever, and they're foolish enough to say what all of us think. They're foolish enough to say out loud what all of us have thought. All of us, in a fleeting moment, you can confess it when you get home, but in a moment, you've thought, 
Man, I'm better than that guy. I mean, we've all had that. You've seen that and you've thought, I'm not that bad. But we're sane human beings and we don't say it out loud. Because we know if I said it out loud, that would sound ridiculous. Can you imagine going to somebody and saying, hey, I know you weren't talking to me or anything, but I was just thinking, I'm greater than you. I just wanted to let you know. We don't do that because as soon as you said it, you would think, man, it may be true, but it's still stupid to say out loud. Keep that stuff private, bury it deep down, journal about it or something, but don't say it out loud. These guys don't care. They are having an argument over who is the greatest. And Jesus comes into the house and he goes, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they don't say anything. And I can only imagine that the disciples were having an argument in the room right there and Jesus walks in and they get quiet. They get quiet and Jesus kind of feels that, that unresolved conflict in the room, that tension, like you've all been there. If you've ever had you know, Christmas or a holiday with family, you've had this before. You walk into a room and it's obvious to people have just been arguing and you can kind of feel the, their faces red and their anger. They're not talking to each other and you walk in, you feel uncomfortable and you're like, big gulps, huh? You're like, you don't know what to say because you can feel it. I'm sure Jesus walks in and goes, so what's going on, guys? They're like, nothing, don't talk to us, we're angry. You know, that's what's going on in the situation. And they don't say anything. Jesus asked them, what were you guys talking about? They don't say anything. They stay quiet, and I think they probably stay quiet because they're thinking, he's just going to rebuke us. He's just going to rebuke us. This is, we've seen this pattern before. Let's just be quiet. Let's be quiet because Jesus is going to give us some pithy statement about how we shouldn't desire greatness and we never thought of before, and... That's probably what they're thinking. But that's not what Jesus does. No, Jesus actually encourages their desire for greatness. Look at verse 35. Look at verse 35. And he sat down and called the 12, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. See, Jesus grabs a seat. He gathers the disciples around him, not to rebuke them, but to encourage them probably took them by surprise and a good surprise for us to be reminded that Jesus is not just a killjoy. He has greater things in mind. He has greater things in mind. And he tells them, oh, you want to be great? You want to be first? I'll tell you how. I'll tell you how. I'll tell you how to be great. I'll give you the formula for greatness. He doesn't denounce their desire. He encourages it and redirects their aim. He redirects their aim because he knows that humans are hardwired. He created them. He knows that they are hardwired to receive greatness, but to receive greatness from God. He made them. He knows this is a desire wired into them to want to receive greatness from God. See, in Genesis 1, when you read the creation narrative, humanity is the crown of creation. He makes all these amazing things, but at the end of it, his masterpiece are these image bearers. And they are unique in all of creation. They alone bear his image. They alone can know God as father in a personal relationship. They alone rule over creation. Now, humans were made for significance. They were made to be revered. They were made for it. And they were made to receive greatness from God. But sin turned our desire to receive greatness from God into a longing to receive greatness from other people. See, what happened is sin twisted our desires. See, sin didn't bring new desires. It just distorted our God-given ones. And Jesus instructs them. He says, oh, you want to be first? Let me tell you how to do it. 
And what he's saying is he's showing us how sin has distorted our desires. That now our desire, we were made to receive greatness from God, but we now we look to others to receive that greatness. We want others to recognize our excellence, others to sing our praises, others to follow our lead. We go to other people and what begins to happen, and you begin to look to greatness from, from other people, it's not just enough to be great. It's not just enough to be great. Now you have to be greater than the next person. You have to be greater than the next person. You have to outshine the next person. See, the disciples weren't arguing about whether they were great or not. They were arguing about who was the greatest. See, what begins to happen, we begin to want to know the pecking order of greatness. When you begin to do this, when I begin to do this, when we begin to seek greatness from one another, it's an empty and exhausting process. It's an exhausting process because you never find the satisfaction you're looking for. C.S. Lewis as always, has a great explanation as to why. Listen to this quote. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. If I'm a proud man, then as long as there is one man in the whole world more powerful or richer or cleverer than I, he is my rival and my enemy. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. When we seek greatness from others instead of the greatness that comes from God, satisfaction is unattainable. It's unattainable. There will always be someone better than you to be compared to. There will always be some achievement you haven't accomplished. There will always be someone who is unimpressed by you. And this seeking greatness from other people is often an unconscious pursuit of ours. It's unconscious. We're not even aware that we're pursuing it until until we're denied the greatness we're looking for. I don't recognize how often I seek greatness from other people until someone doesn't give me the greatness that I'm after. About a year ago, uh, there was, I was at a church conference here in Austin. And this conference was basically getting together church leaders who were trying to spread the gospel to people who are outside the church, people who don't know Jesus. And uh, Todd Ingstrom, who is one of our executive pastors and elders here at the Austin Stone, was teaching at the conference. And the material he was teaching, I had contributed to along with other pastors from our church. And there was one line in particular that, that I had written. And this line, when Todd was teaching it, was getting quoted a lot and tweeted a lot. And, I, and some friends of mine said, hey, did you see that line that you wrote? It's being tweeted by a lot of people. It really is resonating with people at the conference. And when I heard that, I was happy. And I thought my happiness was rooted in godliness. I really did. I thought my happiness was rooted in, oh, that's awesome. The church is being served. People are starting to understand what it means to be on mission. And I thought my happiness was rooted in godliness until, until I found out that they were attributing the quote to Todd. They're attributing the quote to Todd, and all of a sudden, it flipped, and I became hurt, disappointed, frustrated, bitter. In a moment, my joy flipped upside down, and I was disappointed and bitter. And at first, I thought it's because, well, this just isn't right. That's my quote. It's just plagiarism. I like got all these crazy thoughts. All these crazy thoughts. And I was angry, but then as the emotion subsided, what I began to realize is it's not about justice in my mind. 
No, I was seeking greatness and I didn't get it and now I'm angry. No, I want to be held in high esteem. I, I, I want to be known by other people. I want them to know that I wrote this. And as soon as I didn't get it, that's when all the negative emotions came flooding my way. See, I didn't know I was seeking the greatness from other people until I didn't get it. You don't realize that you're doing this until you don't get that promotion or until your kids are embarrassing you in public or until that person doesn't say thank you or until you don't get retweeted. You don't notice it until you don't get it. And there's a great line that some, some one of our elders has used and he says, you know how much of a servant you actually are when you're treated like one. You know how much of a servant you actually are when you're treated like one. Because we can say all day, I'm a servant, until someone treats us like a servant and they don't applause us, they, they don't approve of us, they don't tell us thank you, they treat us like a servant. All of a sudden we want to remind them, oh, I'm not a servant. No, you need to approve of me and you need to say thank you. You need to act this way for me to serve you this way. And the question is, I thought I was a servant. Well, only if they do what I say. You only know how much of a servant you actually are when you're, until you're treated like one. And in those moments when those negative emotions come flooding your way, you begin to realize, oh, I'm not a servant. No, I'm seeking the greatness that comes from other people. And this greatness always lets us down. It always lets us down over time. Eventually, it will not satisfy us. And Jesus is coming not to squash this desire for greatness. No, he's coming to satisfy it. He wants to fill this need, this longing we have with the greatness that comes from God. Look at verse 35. Look at verse 35. And he sat down and called the 12. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not him, not me, but him who sent me. Jesus flips our world completely upside down. He says greatness is found in comparison to others, but it's not the first, it's the last. It's not those who accomplish great, th great things, it's those who serve all people. He's flipping our world upside down, and he takes a child in his arms. He takes a child in his arms as an illustration of the servant we have to become to be great that we have to serve people who exhaust us, serve people who can't pay us back, serve people who can't promote us, who aren't emotionally fulfilling people to be around. And he uses a child because he's demonstrating that you have to serve the people you want to serve the least to be great. And if you want to be great, you have to become a servant of those people you don't want to serve. So he uses a child because there's not much payback in serving children. There's not. They're not grateful at all. They're not. They don't say, thank you, you're the best. They don't. No, they assume that you should do whatever it is they say. My, my little girl is about to be two years old, and I love her to death. I really do. But, um, but I was telling Lauren a couple months ago that often she treats us like we're her personal butlers, basically. It's like, here, hold this. I'm going to go destroy this. You better do what I say or I'm going to lose my mind and cry on the floor. They have this mindset that everything revolves around them. And there's this uh, Twitter account called Honest Toddler. I'm not sure if you've heard of it before. Um, 
But basically this Twitter account is devoted to kind of short, funny phrases that kind of express what toddlers actually think. Express kind of uh, the selfishness that they indulge in all the time. And there's one of my favorites was this. It'll be on the screen behind me. It says, have you ever loved someone more than you loved yourself? Me neither. Me neither. And that expresses perfectly how children think. All they do is take. That's all they do. Because they're weak and they're helpless. That's all they know to do. And Jesus uses the child to say, you have to serve people like this. Becoming a servant of people who exhaust you. A servant of people who you struggle to love. Who you lack patience with. People that if you were honest, you feel are a little bit below you. He says, if you want to be great, you have to become a servant of all. It's important to differentiate. It's not just service. It's not just service. It's servant of all. See, no one in this room would say, I don't believe in serving people. None of you would say that. None of you would say that. You all serve people, but all of us have those people that we're unwilling to serve. All of us have people that it grinds our soul when we're forced to serve them. For some of us, we don't like serving people who we view as irresponsible. We view them as irresponsible, so in our minds, we justify and say, well, I don't want to encourage their reckless behavior, so I'm not going to serve them. Others of us don't want to serve people who we perceive as self-righteous and put together. So we justify not serving them by saying, well, I don't want to encourage their haughtiness and arrogance, so I'm not going to serve them. I'm sure people are coming to your mind who, when you think about serving them, it frustrates you. All of us have groups of people, individuals, who serving sounds awful because they don't deserve it. They don't treat us right. They don't honor us or respect us. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be great, you have to become a servant of those people, that your identity is as a servant to them, that when they don't thank you, you still serve them. This is how he defines greatness. This feels impossible, doesn't it? This feels impossible to me. I think about people who I have a hard time serving and the idea that to be great, I have to be a servant of them all the time feels impossible. I mean, what could possibly motivate me or motivate you or motivate anyone to become this type of servant? Well, Jesus gives us the motivation in verse 37. Look at it again. It says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus says that by receiving and serving those who can't repay you, you get to know Jesus and his father. That by becoming this type of servant, you get to know God. And so logic follows that the only reason you would want to become this type of servant is if God is your goal. If the greatness that comes from God is your goal and not the greatness that comes from others, that has to be your goal to become this type of servant. But we know ourselves, don't we? We know what the Bible says. We have our own personal experience to know that our desire for God is often very weak. It's often very weak. You and I rarely serve those people that we don't want to. We rarely do. See, you and I don't just need to know the path to greatness. You and I need to be changed and made new so we can walk on this path of greatness. See, this is why Jesus is telling his followers over and over again, I'm going to have to die. That's why he keeps reminding them of his impending death and resurrection, because they don't just need a ruler, they need a savior. 
We don't just need to be told what to do. We need to be changed so we can actually do what he's telling us to do. See, Jesus is coming to rescue us for greatness, to make us new so we can be great again. See, Jesus became last. Jesus became despised in the eyes of the world so you and I could be esteemed and highly favored in the eyes of God. Jesus became a servant of all people. Those who didn't say thank you, those who didn't respect him, those who didn't like him, he became a servant of all people so that you and I could receive the greatness that comes from God. Jesus has secured the greatness we were made for. Jesus has secured the greatness that comes from God. And he secured a position and a standing so significant and so great that it makes any so-called greatness here look like nothing. I want to end our time by reading to you Revelation 22. And I want you to hear, I want you to hear what Jesus says is coming for those who repent of their sin and trust in him. Listen to Revelation 22, 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord their God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. When you compare the greatness that comes from God with the best this world has to offer, they do not compare. Greatness from others in this life can offer you a nicer neighborhood with less crime and less brokenness for a little while, for a little while. Greatness that comes from God gives you a spot in a world with no sin, no pain, no death, no evil. They don't compare. Greatness in this world can offer you some fun experiences for a little while. The greatness that's coming from God gives you a spot at the throne where you get an incomprehensible joy forever. Greatness in this life can offer you some amazing relationships for a little while. The greatness that comes from God gives you a face-to-face relationship with the creator and the source of all that is beautiful, right, good, and true. Greatness in this life can give you a little power in government or in business for a little while. But the greatness that comes from God, you get to reign with Jesus forever over all things. They don't compare. They do not compare. Jesus is not here to squash your desire for greatness. He's saying, oh, you want to be great? Let's go. Let's go. Let's be great. Because this world cannot match the promises for the people of God in Christ. Cannot. Jesus wants you to pursue greatness, but it means changing your scorecard. It means changing your scorecard. The scorecard is not how much can I accomplish, what status can I get, what comforts can I consume. No, greatness is found in becoming a servant. That you indeed may receive some great things from this world, but you and I have to remind one another that's not true greatness. This world will applaud you for getting the great things of this world, and you need this community to remind you that's not true greatness. That is small in comparison. Small in comparison to what God has for his people. See, you become a servant because you so believe in Jesus becoming a servant for you on the cross. This practically means you becoming a part of a missional community, you joining a missional community, you in the missional community you're already in, 
having the mindset of a one who's coming to serve, not to be served by those people. It means working for the good of that coworker that you really don't respect. It means loving those who don't appreciate you. It means serving those who will not return the favor. See, the path to greatness runs through the valley of the cross. That if we're gonna be great as a church, it's not found in how large we grow, how influential we are. It's found in if we became servants of all. And that we have to become servants of all because that's what our Savior did for us. And so we have to look to Jesus as the motivation for us to become the servants of this city, the servants of our neighborhood, the servant of our family, so that we can receive the greatness that comes from God, the greatness that cannot be compared to anything in this life. Let's pray together. Father, we want to be great. God, we want to be a people who are significant and valued. And God, would you begin to make us a people and make us a church who understand what true greatness is, who don't settle for the small things of this world, the small pleasures of this world, the temporary joys of this world, and forsake the true and everlasting greatness you have for us. That Jesus, you died to make us great again, to make us receive greatness from God. Father, we must confess, we have to be honest. God, that greatness from you is so often not what we're after. God, that greatness from you is not something that we seek. And God, our lives are mired in this pursuit of the greatness that comes from other people. God, forgive us. Forgive me. Forgive us and remind us that you did not come to be a killjoy. You just have greater things in mind. You have greater joys in mind, greater power in mind, greater approval in mind, greater comforts in mind. God, give us faith to heed your word. Give us faith to trust you. We ask all these things knowing Jesus has secured the path. We just want to walk on it. We ask these things in his name. Amen.